At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, y'all, we are back with a fascinating crime estate today. And, you know, this story is one I've actually wanted to cover for a while now. I began researching it back in February of this year. But because the story, while old, has also recently been in the news, you know, it took a little bit more time to research than some of the other crimes and properties that we've covered. Well, now I'm intrigued. Okay, well, good. And, you know, I think I've mentioned on previous podcasts, you know, Alana and I, as well as our producer, Melanie, are all boy moms. We do not have a girl between the three of us. Yeah, we don't even have girl pets. I mean, not at my house. Mm-mm. But we're the queens, so I like it. I like it that way. Yep, all boys all the time. Okay, so with that in mind, fair warning to our listeners that it's going to be hard for us not to bring our boy mom perspective to this story And on a more serious note, I also want to warn our listeners that this episode contains discussions of sexual assault in addition to murder. Thank you for Mm -hmm. that warning. So our episode today takes place in Beverly Hills, California, but the backstory to the story actually begins in a neighboring town about 30 minutes away from Beverly Hills in Calabasas. And really, everything you need to know about Calabasas can be summed up by knowing that it's where the Kardashians live a neighborhood of wealth, privilege, and expensive real estate that is popular among celebrities and L.A. media execs. And that is exactly how the Menendez family ended up in Calabasas in 1986 when Jose Menendez, the patriarch of the family, accepted a job as an executive at Paramount Studios and moved his family from Princeton, New Jersey to Calabasas, California, where they purchased the house at 24969 Mulholland Highway for $1.4 million. You know, on a spoiler alert, Mulholland Highway is really, really long. And we'll bring it up later on in in the story. Um, But my brother lives in, well, he basically lives on the corner of Calabasas, in Calabasas. He lives in Woodland Hills, but it's like on the mountain that Calabasas is, he shares the same exit with uh, the Kardashians. Mm-hmm. And so I've been out there a bunch of times and it, I mean, it is beautiful. It is definitely quite a ways away from LA, which is interesting that so many entertainment industry people have lived there, even in the 80s. Uh, because it is, I mean, with LA traffic, it's 30, you know, miles, an hour and a half, you know, drive in traffic. But Mullen Holland Highway is amazing, goes through the canyons, mm-hmm. and but, but it goes all the way to Hollywood nice. area from there. Okay, that's good. I, di- I didn't realize it was such a long stretch, and that makes a lot more sense later. So good call. Um, the home they purchased was set on 14 acres, and then Menendez family rented a home close by while the property underwent an extensive two-year renovation project overseen by the matriarch of the family, Kitty Menendez. Jose and Kitty's two sons are teenagers at this time. The eldest, Lyle, was accepted to Princeton shortly after the move, and their youngest son, Eric, enrolled at Calabasas High School. While Eric was a nationally ranked tennis player, both boys were considered to be pretty average students, which makes one wonder how Lyle got accepted to Princeton. You know how those things go. Sometimes dad has to write a big check. 
Yeah, that's exactly what he did, Alana. Um, Jose Menendez was said to have made a $50,000 donation to Princeton to assure his son's acceptance. He was the kind of man who believed that an Ivy League education was the ultimate status symbol, and he wanted that for both of his sons. Hmm. I don't know. That's kind of yucky. I mean, it definitely doesn't teach like a work ethic or... Well, he... Interesting, the dad, Jose, he came from Cuba. And so, I, I mean, I would have thought that maybe that he would have been a pull himself up by the bootstraps. I mean, he obviously is a highly successful man making a lot of money. You would have thought that he would want to impart that instinct in his children. Yeah, I mean, he definitely was a self-made man who um, maybe was more concerned about how his children looked and acted and what that mm. represented towards him than what they were actually like. Yeah, I noticed he didn't choose those words lightly, ultimate status symbol, not an mm-hmm. ultimate education. Exactly, symbol. right. Yeah. yeah, no, I think you're, you're right. And it's kind of interesting though because he, he actually at one time was the general manager for Hertz Rental Cars and then parlayed that into an entertainment industry with movies and I think eventually in, in um, the music industry. Very successful for a self-made man, but not necessarily instilling that values. Yeah, he did not subscribe to the love and logic parenthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> what, what am I trying? What? Love and logic parenthood. Philosophy. Philosophy. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, Actually, by all accounts, Jose was considered to be a perfectionist, and he ruled his family with an iron fist. He expected perfection out of his two sons, and often to their detriment, went about achieving that perfection in ways that weren't actually beneficial for the children. It's said that Kitty often did the boys' homework so that they would get good grades, and Jose controlled how they dressed, who they could be friends with, and who they could date. That's wild, and I could not do the boys' homework. Oh, definitely (laughs) not. Physics and... Algebra and anyway. Now, it is always interesting to me, though, when you see the science fair projects and you can tell which ones the parents did and which Mm -hmm. one the kids did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not at our house. Okay. So it's not surprising that with all of this wealth and privilege, the boys lacked that work ethic that we were talking about earlier and the work ethic that Jose himself had. And in the fall of 1987... Lyle was accused of plagiarizing a classmate's note for a psychology paper. Princeton gave him the choice of accepting a suspension or being expelled. Jose flew from California to New Jersey to meet with the university president in person, but he was unable to prevent the suspension, and Lyle ended up coming back home with him to California. So at least good for Princeton there. Right. Now, fast forward a few months to the summer of 1988, and Eric, the younger of the two sons, was implicated in a number of burglaries in the area. Eric and his friends claimed that they were bored and would go on, quote, hot prowls, burglarizing homes just for the thrill of it. All in all, they stole over $100,000 worth of jewelry, cash, and other items from the homes of their friends' parents. Did you ever see, oh, oh, sorry. Did you ever see, it was like, I don't know movie of the week because this happened in, I think, the early aughts. There was this bling. Um, uh, the bling ring or yeah, something. Yeah. yeah, that's what it was. And it was, you know, privileged Southern California, might have been Calabasas area, uh, teenagers who were stealing. And then they ended up make, like getting arrested and making, you know, a, mo- a movie about it. it. Seems like the pre-bling ring group in the yeah. 80s. Yeah, that's exactly what this was. 
Not surprisingly, Jose was furious because his sons had embarrassed him in their new town. Yeah, you'd think they'd, he'd be embarrassed by being kicked out of Princeton and doing the robberies, but he's embarrassed because of how it looks on him. Yeah. And, they're, and also interesting that they're both different parts of the country and they're both going through something at the same time. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't thought about that before, but they're both sort of really struggling with this new, Mm -hmm. you know, life that they're living for sure. So Eric ended up returning most of the merchandise and Jose wrote a check for $11,000 to cover the items that couldn't be returned. Luckily for Eric, as a juvenile with no prior arrest, he was put on probation and ordered to do community service. Additionally, the judge required that both boys undergo psychological counseling. Now, many friends of the family believe that Eric was convinced to take the fall for the robberies, speculating that Lyle was also involved, but his age would have made it so that he was prosecuted as an adult, and this kind of conviction would prevent him from returning to Princeton at the end of the summer. So it's unclear to me whether or not this is true, but one thing is for certain. Jose was so embarrassed by the robberies that he moved the family to Beverly Hills and away from anyone who knew what his sons had done. Wow. So the Menendez family purchased the home at 722 North Elm Drive in the renowned 90210 zip code of Beverly Hills in 1988. And while most reports say that the house cost the family $5 million, property tax records show that it was purchased for $4 million. 722 North Elm is in the flat section of Beverly Hills, a neighborhood of large, single-family homes only about a half block from Sunset Boulevard. This luxurious property, originally built in 1927, came with a swimming pool, guest house, and maybe most impressive of all, especially for this family, a tennis court. The two-story Mediterranean-style property featured a stucco exterior with red tile roofs and boasted over 9,000 square feet of living space. It had recently been extensively remodeled by the previous owner, who leased it for a few years to celebrities like Prince and Elton John. Okay, so if you're keeping track, this is the third property the family has purchased or lived in since their move to California two years prior. First, the home they're remodeling on Mulholland Drive in Calabasas, the home they rented while doing the renovations on Mulholland Drive, and now this property at 722 North Elm in Beverly Hills a move which required Eric to transfer to Beverly Hills High School. So we recently talked on a different episode about purchasing fully furnished homes. Was that Grizzo Mansion last week? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, very recently. But I thought it was interesting that when the Menendez family purchased this home, the sellers offered to sell it furnished for an additional $350,000. But the Menendez family declined that offer. Hmm. I mean, maybe since it was a rental property, you know, they weren't very wedded to the furniture. I think you're um, exactly right. It's yeah. almost like those vacation properties we yeah. were talking about. Mm-hmm. You don't need that furniture in your regular house. I, I kind of am actually surprised they didn't take them up on it just because they still were renovating that other house. I mean, like, what kind of money did these people have to be having all these uh, high-value homes? Yeah, lots of irons in the fire at one time, for sure. So not quite a year later, on the evening of August 20th, 1989, a horrible crime occurred at the Menendez home. Kitty and Jose were in the living room when they were both shot multiple times by a 12-gauge shotgun. According to investigators, Kitty was shot 10 times and Jose was shot 6 times. The crime was so brutal that investigators initially suspected that it could have been a mob hit. Jose was shot first in the back of the head, 
and it appears that Kitty ran down the hall but was shot in the leg, causing her to fall before she was shot several times again. Their sons, Lyle and Eric, found their bodies upon returning home from seeing a movie and called 911 at 11.47 p.m. In the call, Lyle tells the dispatcher that someone killed his parents and can be heard telling his brother to stay away from the bodies. And in a pattern that we see over and over again, police broke protocol for the wealthy Menendez family by allowing the brothers to grieve together and not testing their hands or clothes for gunshot residue. In fact, while the police talked to the brothers the night of the crime, they didn't formally interview them until two months later. That's infuriating. It is. That's terrible. But you're right. We keep hearing about this kind of stuff. I mean, even if they didn't have anything to do with the crime, this is bad policing. Like, I mean, it just seems to be standard operating procedures that you want to be able to interview them. You want to establish the timeline. You want to do um, as much crime scene investigation as possible. Yeah, I think you're both exactly right. And, you know, friends and colleagues said that they were actually not surprised that Jose was murdered. One colleague went on record saying that if he had to list the top five people he knew who might be murdered, Jose was at the top of the Dang. list. So like, yeah. He was like a jerk or something? I, I guess. Dang. Vanity Fair reporter Dominic Dunn wrote, I visited the house on Elm Drive. It is deceptive in size, far larger than one would imagine from the outside. You enter a spacious hallway with a white marble floor and a skylight above. Ahead to the right is a stairway carpeted in pale green. Off the hallway on one side is an immense drawing room, 40 feet in length. The lone piece of music on the grand piano was American Pie by Don McLean. And on the other side are a small paneled sitting room and a large dining room. At the far end of the hallway in full view of the front door is the television room where Kitty and Jose spent their last evening together. On the back wall is a floor-to-ceiling bookcase filled with books, many of them paperbacks, including all the American history novels of Gore Vidal, Jose's favorite author. On the top shelf of the bookcase were 60 tennis trophies, all first place that had been won over the years by Lyle and Eric. What's a drawing room? Oh. I'm trying to think how I would describe that today. I mean, I think initially... It was where the ladies of the day would play their music or draw and do hmm, art. Like literally a, like an art ring. Like a an, studio. Yeah, like probably lots of natural okay. sunlight with some settees and some, you know, for people of leisure that don't have to work all yeah, day and not? need yeah. a place. To just sit I think and- it's an entertaining room that isn't a, um, a TV room kind of situation. Uh, I've been watching The Gilded Age on HBO, and, you know, they always retire to the drawing room, which just seems like a place to play cards or gossip or have drinks. I I don't know. That's like your office here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Not a lot of work, a lot of drawing. Sure. Uh A lot of drawing, drinks. Okay, so leads in the case were slim, but investigators began to suspect that Lyle and Eric were involved in their parents' death after they both went on incredibly lavish spending sprees. Upon inheriting their family's $14 million estate, they spent almost $700,000 in the course of a few months on things like a Rolex, a Porsche, adjoining Marina Del Rey penthouses, a Jeep, and get this, they even purchased a Buffalo Wing-style restaurant. What? It's kind of crazy that they had access to all that money so quickly after their parents passed. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, obviously the estate wasn't settled at the time, right? But they probably had access to whatever was in the bank account. Oh, well, at least yeah, you know. Yeah, 
I mean, I get, you know, on one hand, I'm very judgy. Uh, but on the other no. hand, hey, I'm joking, sure. you're not. <laughs> no, judgy about this. But, you know, they were, what, 19, 21, 22 year olds. I mean, you know, you you have to give them a little bit of grace about being able to have access to all that money when they are at that age. Yeah, and I could see the um, the adjoining condos. You know, I wouldn't live in that house again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so, yeah. They vacated it pretty quickly. Didn't sell it right away, but vacated. Yeah. So it's around the same time when this spinning spree is going on that Eric's friend Craig Signorelli from Calabasas High School reached out to police to tell them about a screenplay that he and Eric wrote together. Entitled Friends, the 60-plus page screenplay tells the story of a young man named Hamilton Cromwell who kills his parents in order to get his inheritance. The main scene shares eerie similarities to how Kitty and Jose were killed. One of the most quoted passages from the screenplay comes from the mouth of Hamilton Cromwell. Speaking about his father, he says, Sometimes he would tell me that I was not worthy to be his son. When he did that, it would make me strive harder, just so I could hear the word, I love you, son, and I never heard those words. Sad. It is sad. But none of this is enough to charge Eric or Lyle with their parents' murder. However, as the saying goes, loose lips sink ships, and that is exactly how police were able to move forward with this investigation. In October, approximately two months after the murders, Eric goes in to see his psychologist. Now, remember, seeing a psychologist was one of the requirements that the judge placed on Eric a year prior when not charging him for Mm -hmm. those robberies. And it's in this session with the therapist that Eric confesses to killing his parents. Claiming not to be bound by client-patient confidentiality because he feared for his life, and also just generally being unethical in the way he practiced, the therapist Jerome Ozeal allowed his mistress, a woman by the name of Judalon Smythe, to listen through the door to his sessions. Oh, dang. It's horrible, right? Yes. And upon hearing Eric's confession to his therapist, Judalon Smythe reached out to the Beverly Hills Police Department, who then seized the therapist's recordings and arrested Lyle on May 8th, 1990. Do you think maybe he was suspicious and that was like his way to be able to go to the authorities. It's like, hey, listen at the door just in case. I don't know. I did a little bit more research on this guy that doesn't really come up in the rest of the podcast, but he's, he seems a little smarmy. Gotcha. Okay. I think he maybe just didn't care about client patient. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Okay. So Eric, but then, okay. So then Lyle was arrested on May 8th and Eric turns himself into police three days later after returning from a trip to Israel. He had been over there playing tennis. So not surprisingly, there was a lot of controversy about whether or not the tape from Dr. Ozeal's office should be allowed into the trial. It took almost two years for the Supreme Court of California to ultimately decide that the tapes would be allowed into evidence. And with that, the court TV trial of the early 90s got underway. Um, Eric, a quick question. Eric was the one who was with the therapist, but they arrested Lyle first. That's right, because I guess when he made the confession, he said that they had done it together, but then Eric had then left to go to Israel to play tennis. So they arrested whoever was in the States, and then when his brother got back, they turned it. Yeah, okay. No, that was a good question. 
So, Alana, the prosecution claimed that the murders occurred for the same reason that they occurred in Eric's screenplay to claim an inheritance. So when details emerged, it came out that the Menendez brothers killed their parents at 10 p.m. using shotguns that Eric had purchased in San Diego. After the murders, they dumped the shotguns off of Mulholland Drive in one of the local canyons before disposing of the shotgun shells and their bloody clothes at a gas station. This was all before they bought movie tickets and went looking for a friend at the Taste of L.A. Food Festival, all activities done to provide evidence of an alibi. Talk about premeditated murder. I mean, they really thought out this alibi and their story. Not a, not a spur-of-the-moment crime. No, especially when you think like they purchased the guns in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm with you there, Elena. So in an effort to contradict the prosecution's claims that Lyle and Eric were out only for their inheritance— The defense presented substantial evidence that the murders occurred as the result of years and years of sexual abuse by Jose Menendez. Others admitted to killing their parents, but claimed what is called imperfect self-defense, arguing that because of a history of sexual and psychological abuse by their father, they believed, honestly though mistakenly, that their parents were about to kill them. In court, Eric testified the molestation began when he was six. At age 17, he resisted, and his father, quote, threw me on the bed and went to get a knife and put it at my throat. Eric hoped that attending the University of California, Los Angeles in the fall of 1989 would provide an escape. But Jose Menendez's edict that his youngest son return home several nights each week was upsetting to the 18-year-old Eric, which caused him to confide in his 21-year-old brother, Lyle. A photograph was presented as physical evidence by the defense showing Lyle and Eric's genitalia allegedly taken by their father when they were children. Man. No. And during the trial, Lyle said that his father began molesting him when he was six years old, raping him and making him perform oral sex. Lyle said that his father stopped molesting him after a few years, but it didn't occur to him until years later that he did so because he began molesting his brother, Eric. Mm. These claims were supported by two Menendez family members. A cousin, Andy Cano, said that as a child, he was told by Eric about the sexual abuse, which both brothers described as, quote, penis massages. Another cousin, Diane Vander Molen, said that she once told Kitty that Jose was molesting Lyle, but Kitty told her that wasn't true. By January 1994, the trial was wrapping up. The Menendez brothers were each being tried by separate juries. Jurors on Eric's jury deliberated for 19 days before telling the judge they were deadlocked. Lyle's jury took longer, 25 days, but ultimately deadlocked as well. A retrial took place in 1996, and this trial varied slightly from the first one. First, the judge did not allow TV cameras into the courtroom. The judge limited the amount of testimony about the sexual abuse claims, citing a state Supreme Court ruling in another case. And because he didn't allow the testimony about the sexual abuse, there was not a reason to allow the jury to decide between manslaughter and murder. So in this trial, the jury's only choice was murder, guilty or not guilty. In the second trial, both boys were found guilty, and on July 2nd, 1996, the judge sentenced the Menendez brothers to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And Alana, you would think this is where our story wraps up, but in some ways, it's really just getting started. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. This is horrifying. Do you all remember following this story when it came out? Vaguely. 
Yeah. Vaguely. So journalist Robert Rand, who covered the trial and has since written a book about the Menendez brothers, is quoted as saying, the streets of California are not safer because Eric and Lyle Menendez are locked up in prison. In general, our cultural awareness and tolerance for parental abuse has changed significantly since the Menendez brothers were originally tried and convicted in the mid-90s. In a recent interview with Court TV, Rosie O'Donnell, herself a victim of childhood sexual abuse, says, Our culture was not ready to believe that fathers raped their sons. I know what it's like to grow up in a family with that kind of dynamic. I believe them. I believe they were incested. They felt that they were going to be killed by the father. Now, fast forward to the pandemic and Gen Zers rediscovered the Menendez trial and were overwhelmingly horrified by the treatment of the Menendez brothers as it related to their physical and mental abuse. An entire movement on TikTok and other social media platforms is dedicated to freeing the Menendez brothers. In a New York Times article titled The New Menendez Defenders, Sharon Ross, who is a professor of media studies at Columbia College in Chicago and also studies television and fan behavior, writes, the boom in true crime alongside, quote, short form social media like TikTok that encourages bite-sized, high-impact posts that aim to generate reactions has fueled debate among young people online on big picture issues such as how we define truth, justice, and equity. But the law doesn't respond to TikTok trends, and in order for the Menendez brothers to get a new trial, new evidence not available during the first trial has to be presented. Two key pieces of evidence may do just that. So I told you earlier about Lyle and Eric's cousin who testified that the brothers told him about their dad's sexual abuse towards them. A letter written by Eric to this cousin only eight months prior to the murders was recently found and in part reads, I've been trying to avoid dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come. I don't know I'll make it through this. An L.A. Superior Court judge ordered Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon, whose office prosecuted the Menendez brothers, to explain whether his lawyers exercised due diligence in pursuing evidence that their father, Jose, was, in fact, abusive. The prosecution would repeatedly tell the jury that Jose Menendez was, quote, not the kind of man that would abuse children, insisting that he was not violent and not brutal. The judge wants Gascon to explain how diligently his office dug into the claims of abuse or Jose Menendez's behavior at the time of the killings. Much of the evidence of abuse was excluded, the judge wrote in the recently filed order. Gascon's office has until November 24th to answer that order. So by the time this airs, we'll have an update on that portion of this story. Make sure you follow us on Instagram for those updates. The Menendez's brother's current attorney, Mark Garagos, who is maybe best known for representing Scott Peterson in the death of his wife, Lacey Peterson, and their unborn son, has also filed a writ of habeas corpus with the L.A. Superior Court. So I had to look this up. Habeas corpus is Latin for that you have the body, and it's generally the format in which a federal court can decide if the state's detention of a prisoner is valid or not. Hmm. So according to this writ, newly discovered evidence directly supports the defense presented at trial and just as directly undercuts the state's case against the petitioner. 
The attorney argues that the evidence that has come to light could have led to a different outcome at trial had it been presented in the brother's defense. Now, remember that Jose Menendez was in the entertainment industry, and before he moved to California to work for Paramount, he worked at RCA Records, where he was responsible for the success of several boy bands, including the Puerto Rican group Menudo, the same band where Ricky Martin got his start in the mid to late 80s. A former member of the band has recently come forward to say that he was also molested by Jose Menendez. Roy Rosello joined Menudo in 1983 when he was 13 years old, 15-year-old Xavier Serbia. His story is told in a new three-part docuseries on Peacock. He says that a year after joining the band, he was drugged and raped by Jose Menendez in the Menendez family's New Jersey home. In this series, Eric is quoted as saying, I remember my father taking one of the kids saying he wanted to talk to them alone, and they went off into the house upstairs. Roy Rosello's claims were also mentioned in the habeas corpus petition that Mark Garagos filed on behalf of the Menendez brothers. He claims that had the jury been presented with this evidence in 1996, Eric and Lyle may not have been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The theory of defense at both trials was straightforward. Neither Eric nor Lyle denied the shooting. Instead, the crime was manslaughter, not murder. The killings occurred in imperfect self-defense after a lifetime of physical and sexual abuse from their parents, the petition states. The state's theory in both trials was also straightforward. Eric and Lyle were lying about the sexual abuse. It never happened. They had killed their parents, not in an imperfect self-defense, but to inherit their parents' money, the filing continues. Had jurors seen the letter that Eric Menendez wrote to Andy Cano and learned that Jose Menendez had raped a 13- or 14-year-old boy in 1984, the prosecutor would not have been able to argue that the abuse never happened, the attorneys argued. In short, the new evidence not only shows that Jose Menendez was very much a violent and brutal man who had sexually abused children, but it strongly suggests that, in fact, he was still abusing Eric Menendez as late as December 1988, just as the defense had argued all along, the petition states. Netflix is turning its eye onto the Menendez case and will be focusing on the murders and trial in the upcoming 2024 second season of its anthology series, Monsters, directed by Ryan Murphy. So, woo, that's where we are now. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of information. Do you need a drink of water? I do. Yeah, let me, <laughs> let me do that real quick. Yeah, that, that's a lot to digest. And at, you know, at first, on the, perifer- or on the surface of the story, it seems like, oh, yeah, they killed their parents. They spent all this money. They went on spending sprees. They had no remorse. But then when you look at it from the eyes of someone who had been abused by their father and ignored by their mother for years, it's just a whole nother spin, like a whole nother way to look at it. Both scenarios are heartbreaking, but that one especially. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the question is if it was manslaughter, because again, there's no question that they killed their Mm -hmm. parents. They admitted to that. But what would the sentence have been? And have they already served what mm-hmm. would have been the sentence mm-hmm. for their manslaughter conviction? Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the house for a minute. So Jose and Kitty didn't live to see their house in Calabasas completed. Remember, that was mm-hmm. the very first one they started to remodel. And so that's not the house they were living in at the time of their murders. But despite it not being a crime scene, its connection to the case still hurts its resale value. According to the LA Times, the house was sold at auction in 1994 to Raymond and Vera Stewart 
for $1.3 million, well under the initial appraised value of $2.65 million. It sold again in 2022 for $4.4 million, and we have a great video made by the real estate agent selling the house that we've linked in our show notes and socials if you want to check it out. Now, as for the house at 722 North Elm Drive, where the murders occurred, it's been sold twice. In 1993, it was sold to mystery television writer William Link, who was the co-creator of Columbo and Murder, She Wrote, to name a few. Seems appropriate, right? Right. You know, we've <laughs> we've actually recently watched uh, some of the old Columbo episodes. They kind of hold up, actually. Yeah. And weirdly enough, the very first Columbo episode was uh, directed by a very, very, very young Steven Spielberg. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's mm. fascinating. Sorry. Just thought no, I didn't that's something random. That's good. Okay, so in 2001, this house was sold again to telecommunications exec Sam Deluge. And when it was listed in 2001, it was on the market for $4.15 million. So really only like $150,000 more than the Menendez family paid for it 35 years ago. The house underwent major renovations in 20, uh, excuse me, in 2002. And while it sounds like the interior was pretty much gutted and redone, The exterior looks very much the same as it did when the Menendez family lived in the home. For our Bravo fans, Sandalug and his ex-wife, Rosette Delug, sold another house to Lisa Vanderpump of Bravo's Vanderpump Rules fame. Are you a Bravo fan? Um, No. Okay. Melanie is, I bet. I'm a very big below deck fan. Fan. Oh, Below Deck is so, so I'm very specific about my Bravo. I watch every type of Below Deck, but I don't mm-hmm. go into some of the others. Okay. All right, ladies. So knowing this, what do you think? Would you list it? Would you live there? Elena, would, you always surprise me. What well, do you th- yes, I would list both houses. I would actually live in the house in Calabasas, I think, since they never lived there. And yeah, you should see the pictures too. Oh, okay. it's, it's pretty darn. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So then that's a definite yes. Mm-hmm. And no on the other one. Yeah. Where they actually were killed. Yeah. I think for me, um, I'm with you. I agree on everything you just said. I'm oh, on the same page. Okay. But I think the fact that he was abused in that home is more mm. upsetting to me than the murder. Interesting. That would be hard for me. What about you, Mel? Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, and it's really. It, it it really shows kind of society's bias against male on male, like uh, you know, uh, like father son mm-hmm. kind of child abuse, because we think about fathers uh, abusing, unfortunately, daughters, and you know we don't really think about it. So it it, it can kind of like at first blush, I was I had to, I was like really interesting, and especially when I was thinking these were teenagers, mm-hmm. and you know. Big boys. These aren't small kids, but yet we're still being abused even as late uh, as like that time period. At least one of the boys was at that point. So yeah, it just gives a whole uh, mm-hmm. feel. Um, and and obviously it's it, it's a beautiful house, but it is not hidden. Like that area of Beverly Hills, it's not behind a gate or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's actually very, very accessible if you're down in the in the retail district to even just walk over there, which is you know cool if you're out in LA uh, being a tourist. Not so cool probably if you're a homeowner and you have a notorious house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's smart. That makes me think about what Adrian said about her the house that 
she lived in that Polly Class was kidnapped from, that just the number of people that constantly come by. I think you have to be prepared for that mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. I mean, if it's kind of hard to get to up in the mountains or hills, okay. But if you're in a very tourist neighborhood that you're like, oh, it's only like a couple of minutes from, you know, Wilshire Drive. Let's just go take a look at it. Yeah, that's frustrating. So do you think they'll get a new trial? I mean, because we're recording this a little bit before the November 24th deadline. I think it seems so. I'd sort of be surprised if they don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I say with my legal theory. Well, you researched it really well. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. All right. Well, uh, we hope that you found this this podcast informative and learned something you didn't know. And of course, if you like the podcast, we hope you'll share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's featured Crime Estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.